1: Tell me about these orbs in London, because I was looking at some of the pictures of these. I would have been terrified if these things, it was like that scene in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark with the big boulder rolling down. What happened there?
2: Exactly. It looked to me like something out of a movie. It was, to me, I think something the attachments didn't hold. And I don't know exactly how that worked was attached but it seemed to me a sort of pyramidical structure of balls and somehow the attachments came loose and two of them just rolled down the street. I think it probably was an engineering situation where had they thought about things differently through an engineering perspective they might have been able to avoid that.
1: In some remarkable footage cited by the Telegraph in London, cars can be seen swerving to get out of the way as giant silver balls careen down the street. But where did they come from? Well, it turns out that high winds had blown away a public art piece that the Christmas tree ornament-like orbs were a part of. An Instagram post from the electronic music duo Mount Kimby, who commissioned the four-world set piece by artist Tom Shannon, said they were heartbroken that the winds took the work apart. I'm Mike Rogers, and this is Something Offbeat, the podcast where we take a deep dive into some of the mind-boggling headlines from around the world. In this episode, we'll hear from Laura Griffith, the Deputy Director of the Philadelphia-based Association for Public Art. She joined the show to explain what goes into keeping public art in one place. For the most part.
2: We're actually the oldest public art organization in the United States. We were founded in 1872, and we are celebrating our 150th anniversary this year.
1: All right, 150, really?
2: Really, pretty exciting.
1: Tell me about the name, because a lot of people... They hear that phrase. They hear public art. They don't really understand what it means. What is it?
2: What is public art? Yes. Public art is art that can be accessed by everyone. It's out there for the public, as opposed to something that's created in a studio by an artist that's meant for preferred group or a collector. The work is intended for everyone And so it it tends to be more democratic and it's a reflection of our public history and culture and collective memory and is a response of the artists to the world around them.
1: Tell me about your interest in it. How far does this go back for you?
2: Well, my background is a degree in history and art history. So it's a beautiful melding of those two interests. But it's a very interdisciplinary field, too. So I find that really exciting. And my background work is in museums. And so there's a lot of museum-like work involved in the field, but there also are opportunities to work with living artists, as well as um, taking care of some historic existing pieces.
1: It seems like over the past few decades that public art has become bigger bigger and bigger, figuratively and literally. It's it's almost like some of the artists are trying to outdo each other and make something more spectacular than the last person.
2: Well, I think there's always been an interest in creating monumental works because it makes a bold statement.
1: Public art has existed for thousands of years, even playing an important role in mass communication in ancient Roman and Greek culture, one example, some a marble bust. It made it into a Texas Goodwill store and one of our Something Offbeat episodes. We finally got an ID from the Bavarian Palace Administration that runs the museum where the head had previously been. As Drusus Germanicus, who was a famous Roman general, Since the 1970s, public art has also been connected with the idea that public space is a democratic canvas as part of the civil rights movement, according to the Art Story Nonprofit. And that legacy continues today, as artist J.D. Moore, who created the first public art mural in the city of DeSoto, Texas, explained to KRLD's Stephen Pickering. His painting shows people from all walks of life on a green background.
0: In our public engagement session, we decided on that it was important to include diversity not only in male, female, skin tone, but also in age ranges, too.
1: But public art can also be vulnerable. You posted a picture of the hydrant on Facebook, and you just wrote ARG. Can you uh, translate that for me?
2: Uh, Yes. The hydrant has been painted three times now. I don't mind repainting it, but it's more the thought that the meaning behind the hydrant is being covered.
1: That artist, Chrissy Swanson of Geneva, Illinois, told Mike Krauser of WBBM Radio in Chicago that the hydrants had been painted in the colors of the LGBTQ plus pride flag. Do you find that sometimes? Do you see people trying to climb onto these pieces of art and touch them when they shouldn't be?
2: Well, yes, sometimes that does happen. And some works are adversely affected by people interacting with them. They were not intended to be. Some bronzes, for example, um, if they're not coated in the proper way, human interaction with it can cause damage to it over time. But there are other pieces that the artist wants the public to interact with. So it really depends on what the intention is for the work. But there are ways that you can, if it's a piece that should not be interacted with, like the piece you mentioned in London, there are barriers that you can put up through planted material or or other kinds of material to like a tall base or, you know, other ways that you can sort of keep the public a little at bay if that is necessary.
1: Or just as you said, just anchor them a little better, right?
2: Well, anchoring is always an important aspect. So that can range from anything from if there's a foundation for the work, making sure the pins are long enough and hold the work in place, or there could be other attachments like cabling or other materials that are used to keep the work in place. And and an engineer can help you figure out those things, as well as a conservator And make sure that if there are high wind conditions, for example, that the work will withstand that sort of activity.
1: Although that said, I suppose if you're an artist or an engineer or a property owner, no matter how many things you think of that could happen, there's always something that you haven't thought of, right?
2: Exactly. I'll give you a little example of something that happened to my organization. We installed a a beautiful piece by the artist Mark DeSuvereau. It's a 40-foot tall Steel work made of I beams and it's painted a beautiful orange red color. We actually just recently conserved it, had it repainted because the UV light was fading it over the 15 years it had been installed. But when it was first installed, somehow it got out on social media that if you, it had a kinetic element on the top that moved with the wind, but it was way at the top of the sculpture. And so it got out through social media that if you climbed to the top, you could hang from the end and jump down. So when we got calls to our office that there were people dangling from the end of this sculpture, we immediately called the artist who came down right away and installed a cable to prevent the kinetic piece from moving so much. And that sort of killed that challenge that had become to climb and dangle.
1: I'm glad you use that word because that sounds exactly like one of those dumb TikTok challenges.
2: That's exactly what it had become, so <laughs> it's, it's crazy, but people do crazy things sometimes.
1: In some cases, in fact, public art has even turned on its creators. Back in 2006, artist Luis Jimenez installed a 32-foot tall horse with glowing red eyes outside the Denver airport, which is already a magnet for conspiracy theories. That might show up in a future episode of Something Offbeat. Jimenez died tragically when a piece of metal from the statue fell and pinned him to the ground. Fortunately, though, Griffith hasn't seen deadly cases like that one.
2: I know one of the the processes we go through when we're commissioning a new work of public art, particularly large pieces, is always to think about the what ifs. What would happen if there was a tree that fell on the piece or... You know, it was too easy to access by the public and could cause uh, an accident. Those sorts of things. You have to think about all the conditions surrounding what could happen. But no matter how much you think about that, there still is something that could happen that you're not anticipating. That's just sort of the nature of the beast. So you try to, to ask the what ifs and, and have a, a, you know, a group of professionals involved, including engineers, conservators, you need design professionals. It's a, a really a collaborative effort to get one of these works out there in the public. But there still can be things that happen that you don't anticipate. So you just have to be able to act quickly and respond as a situation arises.
1: What should you consider if, let's say, you own the property? You're not the artist, but you own the property where the display is going to take place. You have to be aware too, right?
2: Well, you know, I think property owners in general have certain liability issues they need to be aware of. So I think that sort of goes without saying, as I said, it's no different than if you were to erect a building. It's the same kinds of things that you need to be thinking about.
1: Have governments gotten involved in this? Are, are there any regulations involved at this point?
2: Well, they're government entities that commission works of public art. So I'm sure their risk management Have very strict criteria in terms of what needs to happen and who is responsible. And that's part of what needs to happen too when you're commissioning a work of of public art. You need to work out all the details in terms of who's responsible for what, who's paying for what, who um, will be taking care of it in the long term, because that's another aspect of this. Once you put the work out there, you can't just walk away. You have to monitor it, and there should be an ongoing conservation and maintenance program to take care of the work so that if, you know, certain conditions arise, they can be taken care of.
1: These pieces can also become very important to communities, albeit grudgingly. In Detroit, Zach Clark and Annie Scaramazzino of Odyssey's Daily J podcast chronicled the city's love of a giant tire sculpture.
2: Stephen told me that when Michelin acquired Uniroyal in 1990, initially they actually considered just doing away with the tire, just getting rid of it. Um, Could you
0: imagine the backlash?
2: Well, and that was the thing, you know, the PR company that was overseeing this whole transition had the wherewithal to just say, they will riot in the streets and be very angry at you if you get rid
1: of the giant tire. People in the city did get irate though, when a beloved
0: whale mural was covered up. How on earth did a bunch of whales end up on a Midwestern building? Well, the best person to answer that is the artist himself. This is Wyland. I always wanted to do one in my hometown. I went to Center for Creative Studies. Originally I was
1: supposed to paint the Joe Lewis Arena, but it got controversial. I had to change locations to the Broadrick Tower, the dilapidated crappy building, but a great location. So I painted it as part of an eight murals and eight cities and eight weeks tour of the Midwest. It was a great project and eventually it became well-loved. Do you have a favorite piece of public art over the years, one that just still blows you away when you think about it? (laughs)
2: Well, it's always a difficult question to answer because I have many pieces that I like. There isn't one single one, but I'll just talk about one that I'm very fond of. And that is a work by the artist Jody Pinto called Fingerspan that the Association for Public Art commissioned in 1987. And it's located on a hiking trail. So you have to swoop along on the hiking trail for about 10 minutes until you come to the site in the middle of the woods which is a, a bridge, it's a functioning bridge in the shape of a finger. So you actually walk through the inside. It's made of Corten steel, it's really beautiful. It blends in with the landscape around it and it's just a, a wonderful experience. That was an extension of the what the ideas the artist was working with at that time, working with that sort of imagery in her other forms of art. So it was, again, as I mentioned, the the way the artist responds to the world around them and how they see things. It's not always for the big spectacle, though for some artists that is an important aspect.
1: So what is it about public art that makes it so important?
2: It's important for those reasons that I listed previously, that it's a a reflection of our culture and in our history and it is out there for us all we don't need a ticket to see it you don't need admission it's there 24 7 so it's something that reflects who we are and that's why i think it's important
1: thanks for listening to something off beats This episode written and produced by Lauren Berry and Chris Blake with audio editing and original music by Myron Kaplan and editorial support from Cooper Mall. And special thanks to KRLD's Stephen Pickering, WBBM News Radio's Mike Krauser, and Zach Clark and Annie Scaramazzino of WWJ News Radio's Daily J podcast. I'm your host, Mike Rogers, and to hear more of our closer examination into some of the unusual news around the world, please subscribe to Something Offbeat on the Odyssey app or Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcast. And if you got your own offbeat story that you think we should cover, please send it to us at somethingoffbeat at odyssey. That's a u d a c y dot